Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. James Brown is the author of Apology to a Young Addict, a memoir. James is the author of the critically acclaimed memoirs Apology to the Young Addict, as I said, The Los Angeles Diaries, and This River. He is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship and the Nelson Algren Literary Award in Short Fiction. Brown's work has appeared in GQ, The New York Times Magazine, Los Angeles Times Magazine, Plowshares, New England Review, and many other publications. He and author Patrick O'Neill are currently collaborating on Writing Your Way to Recovery, How Stories Can Save Our Lives, a book using creative writing techniques to help other alcoholics and addicts achieve and maintain sobriety. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Apology to the Young Addict, your memoir, which was so, so good. I'm just so excited to be talking to you about it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I know this is not your first book, and now I have to go back and read all the other ones, which I haven't read yet. But tell me a little bit about what made you write this book right now, and how is this book different from the other books, which I haven't read. Like, what, what is this book? What did this book do for you? Well, good question. I'll try to keep my question, my answer short. But uh, The Los Angeles Diaries was my first book in this, this memoir and this trilogy. And it dealt a lot with my family, my brother and sister, who both sadly committed, committed suicide. All of us had drinking and, and drug problems. My mother was a career criminal, ended up doing some time for arson and homicide. And then my second book, I could go into great detail about that book, but it really was about my struggles with alcohol and drugs. My second book dealt not so much with my brother and sister and that part of my family, but my immediate family, my three sons and my my ex-wife now, who sadly passed away a while back. And then this one here is the result of accumulating close to 14 years of sobriety. You know, God willing, and and that I maintain until next August, I'll have 14 years. And it had a lot to do with what it's like to be sober, what it's like to help others with their sobriety, sponsorship. It also has to do with my family. It has to do with having survived and having dug myself out of that hole, what my life has become. Good job. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so this book, what I liked about this book is how you jumped both from points of view to who you were addressing. Some of the sections were written in, I guess, the second person, or when you say, you feel like this, you feel like that. And you take us through all the physical moments and experiences of going through detox, like immediately that night, the next night, months down the road, years down the road. So you have some of that. And then you have these vignettes almost like your next door neighbors who become opioid addicts and you have to watch their self-destruction and get sort of pulled into that. And then you have moments that were like edge of your seat reading when you were in Las Vegas for the horrific shooting, mass killing that went on there. And then like tender moments with your family. So you, and like skipping rocks 
on, on the water with <laughs> as somebody's dad overdoses or it, it, it was just like this wonderful, like 360 view of all the sides of how addiction can sort of permeate someone's life. And you're a really good writer too. I'm sure you know this because this is your third book, but, <laughs> but I just really appreciated your actual writing. I was going to try to read a passage or something that I loved, but you were talking about how some, well, let me just read this passage if you don't mind. This is when you're, you're talking to audiences. You say, I open it up to questions, hands rise. This is the part they usually like best. And in the process of answering, I end up telling them how I used to love alcohol, the smell, the taste, how it made me feel, how had I been able to stop after three or four or even 10 drinks, I'd still be at it. At some point though, it quit being about how it made me feel and started being about how I felt when I didn't drink or use. I thought that was such an interesting distinction. So just tell me a little bit about that and how you even got into speaking to, to groups about your experience. Well, fortunately, the Los Angeles Diaries did well. And that book was picked up by many colleges, universities, even some high schools uh, across the country. And so I was fortunate enough to be asked to come out and speak at Red Ribbon Week. And also fortunate to be asked just to come out and read my work and talk about addiction as well as writing. And that was, you know, that was one of those events where I actually had the good fortune to go, you know, speak and share the message about being sobriety. Once you become addicted, whether it's to alcohol or other substances, a lot of it isn't about the pleasure that you initially got when you started drinking and using the once you become addicted, as I said before, now at that point there, it's about maintaining. It's not, it's about avoiding seeking into depression when you don't have that substance in your system. So that's a whole different thing. It's no longer about pleasure. Now it's about maintenance, sadly. As I read your book, I was like, wow, this guy is sort of lucky to still be alive after all you've gone through, right? Just all the ways you've cheated death. And then I got to the passage when you almost drove your car off the cliff when it was so foggy and you were driving drunk and you felt like you heard a voice saying like that you were going to be okay. And then for the first time after being a lifelong atheist, you finally were like, well, maybe there's somebody watching over me. <laughs> so how do you feel about that now? Like, where do you fall on that sort of belief spectrum? My belief spectrum is open-minded. And so what works for me may not work for another uh, person struggling with addiction. Spirituality is a big part of many of recovery programs, including AA. And for me, I always felt that it was quitting drinking and using was a matter of willpower. And unfortunately, I never had enough willpower to do that. And when I had a sponsor kept saying, well, Brown, you know, you're not, you're not be able to do this by yourself. And so I said, well, what do you mean? And basically, he says, you need to embrace a power greater than yourself so that you have someone to, to talk with and you have someone to ask for for strength. And that was the beginning. I had to crack that door open a little bit because of my past with agnosticism and atheism. For me to accept that there was something out there that could be helpful to me that I couldn't see, feel, or touch, it was hard to accept. And however, once I started doing what he asked me to do, which was just to open my mind a little bit to the notion that there might be something out there bigger than myself and that something might be able to help me. Um, when I opened that door just to a, just a little bit of a faith to believing in the possibility, eventually, when I began to see results, um, I began to believe that there just might be something bigger than me out there. And I do believe now that there is something bigger than me out there. 
<laughs> Tell me also about parenting through addiction. So you referenced several times in the book how you did things when you were a, a dad, when your boys were younger, that you weren't proud of and that they have since forgiven you for because you've proven now 14 years sober, less so when you wrote the book, but that you can maintain it and you've sort of done, they've forgiven you and you've moved on. But you said that, you know, growing up, there were things you really regret as you did in your parenting. And then of course you, you spotlight other sort of parent-child relationships and the effect of them with when addiction is a part of the family, essentially. So I was wondering how your kids, how you feel about the impact of kids when there's addiction like this in the family. And then also for your own kids, you know, how is it for them, like with all these books and with your story so public, how do they feel about it? <laughs> well, there's a few questions there. Yeah, sorry. Oh, that's okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's just, you know, my, my memory is not the, the sharpest memory, but I I, I, I... I won't even remember I asked them, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Children are probably the greatest casualties of addiction, even if they're not the addict. If they live with an addict or an alcoholic. The behavior of mom and dad is, is not what it should be. The alcoholic addict is usually irresponsible, and children need the parents to be responsible and they children need you there when they need you and if you're not there when they need you you're you're falling short um, in your duties to your children and and I, and I wasn't always there for them because my first you know my my first call was to reach for that drink and I tried to be a good father but the compulsion to drink and use took me away from those responsibilities and, and that's what I you know, the title piece, Apology to the Young Addict, has something to do with that. And the people we harm, we're not just harming ourselves, we're harming all of those that love us. And we can't necessarily see it at the time. And, and again, I use the word sadly, but it is sad. It's not even personal to the children or to the, to the spouse. It's that the drugs and the alcohol must come first. And you and I both know that when your priorities are towards drugs and alcohol first, I put your children second or third, and your wife second or third. And that simply is not right to do. It's not a good good way, a decent way, a, the right way to, to live a life. I have responsibilities, and I have to live up to those responsibilities. Because in the end, when all is said and done, and it comes time for me to depart, I want my children to remember me and say, hey, you know, dad had some problems, but he changed and he became a good father. And I would prefer to remember the good things about my father than I would say the darker things. In the end, I want to go out a decent man, leaving people with good memories of me. Well, I don't even know you and I have good memories of you. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. But your son, is it your son, Logan, who's in law enforcement? Yes. Okay. So when you wrote about him, you wrote about your concern that Perhaps he was getting too aggressive at times, even if he hadn't had that much to drink. And you, you, you kind of sniffed out some signs that you were worried about and that you saw as reflections of what you had been through. And you wrote about that very openly. And I'm thinking to myself, well, like, where is Logan now? And how does he feel about your writing about that? And did, was this the beginning of something or how does he feel? So not that you know necessarily, but from what you've gathered, how do your children feel about your their dad's life sort of being so on display in this way and, and by consequence or their own, you know, there's all, 
Logan. I have Logan as my middle boy. And then I've got a younger one named Nate. And then I have the older one, Andy. And my son, Andy, is a reader. And he read all, he's read all of my books. And Andy has an MFA in art from UC Irvine, where I attended school and got my MFA. But his is in, like, his is in studio art. Mine was in creative writing. And Andy is actually the, the one that's read me back to back and knows the material well. The other boys, believe it or not, one is a computer, he's in cybersecurity, and he was raised on this, this darn thing that you and I are communicating on. Yeah. And he hardly reads. His fiance has read my books, and she read a couple of my books, and she really likes them and it says nice things about the writing, as you were mentioning earlier. But the other boys, uh, Logan prefers not, not to, you know, it's odd because I could have been a better father. I should have been a better father. But Logan, for some reason, when I, when I had to make my men's, I had to make my men's to my children. And I had to tell them, you know, I could have been a better father to you. There are things I did that I'm sure you remember that, you know, were wrong. And my little boy, Logan, he said, Dad, you were a great father. I could, well, suddenly there's parts of me that were not great. You shouldn't think of me that way because I don't want you repeating this kind of behavior. It's not acceptable. And he said, but you forgot all the times you got me up and took me to wrestling. All the times you spent training me. All the times you spent doing this and that. And it's very interesting how Logan in particular was able, ended up focusing on the better parts of his father. And for some reason, maybe, I don't know, there must be a psychological reason for it, compartmentalized and pushed out the other side because he wanted to love me. And all, all my all my boys love me. I'm very, very fortunate that they've forgiven me and that they're you know fully in my life now. So wait, tell me, go back to when you were talking about your MFA in creative writing and tell me about when you started, when you knew you loved to write. I mean, the way you describe your childhood, it was less than perfect to say the least given how early you started drinking and doing meth and like all sorts of stuff how did you end up in an mfa program for creative writing <laughs> like how did that even well, yeah. well you know it's interesting there's things called functioning alcoholics and i was a functioning alcoholic and so i was able to get most of my work done and then partake and i was able to keep that balance for quite a few years before it finally caught up to me probably I, I made my first attempts earnestly to get sober when I was 40. However, I realized I had problems in my mid-30s. But up until that point, I had, you know, I'd, I'd worked, I'd gone to college, and my desire to be a writer, that, that veers off into a, a slightly different terrain. And the terrain is that although I was in and out of trouble at a young age, you know, although I was already using and abusing, I had a brother, Barry Brown, the actor, starred Daisy Miller and the movie Bad Company, Jeff Bridges. He saw what was happening to me. Ironically, he was an alcoholic himself, but I was getting into criminal behavior. And my brother was the one who first encouraged me to read a short story by Ernest Hemingway called Clean Well Lighted Place. And I read that, and for some reason, at an early age, I really took to that story and empathized with the old man in that story. And... Out of, out of the blue, I wrote a little piece, a little short story about an old man. And I gave it to my brother. And he, I don't know if it was very good, but he, he really liked it. I loved him. I wanted to please him. So that set me on the course of when I, when I eventually had to leave Los Angeles, and then get out of Dodge, get in trouble, move him with my father. 
I began to correspond with my brother, and my brother, I would send him stories, and he would, you know, write me back and say they were terrific, etc. So I got early encouragement from my brother, and then I got this little notion in my head that I was good at something other than crime, and I, I you know, I could write. And then I started showing my teachers and, and a few of my high school teachers encouraged me, and I think they saw the same thing. They saw a troubled kid, but who took pride in these attempts to write, and so they, too, encouraged me. And I got a lot of encouragement from other people, and so I began to think that I was good at something. And that's how it started. Wow. And they just kept on doing it. <laughs> and what's your writing process like? Laborious. <laughs> <laughs> you you might have noticed how short my sentences are and how I try to strip my sentences of adjectives and adverbs. And a lot of times I don't have the idea or the characters or everything clearly in focus when I write, but I still feel obliged to put in my time. And I have come to believe that I discover what it is I want to say in my writing through the process of attempting to write or to say it. And then the revision process occurs. And so I go back and I'll revise and I'll revise. And it's, 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 a, it's a long process. I certainly toss more work than I keep. Interesting. How, how often do you write? Are you like someone who writes every day a little bit? Or do you only write when you're focusing on the next book? Like, how does it fit into your regular life? It's odd because when I don't sit down to write, I feel guilty because I'm so <laughs> used to doing it. And then sometimes I sit down, I don't have anything to say, darn it. And so usually I may go, well, you know, you know it was quite a few years between books when with Los Angeles started, what, nine years, the gap in my functioning life where I just simply wasn't able to write. But for the most part, I do what I have a book project. That's when I sit down and focus and then. It always seems that I have a book project going. So, yeah, <laughs> so what's your next project? Well, I'm working on a book now with another writer, a fellow named Patrick O'Neill, who wrote a book called Gun, Needle, Spoon, a memoir about his drug and alcohol addiction. He, he was facing 25 years to life. He since got a pardon from Governor Brown for exoneration and former Governor Brown. And he's been in clean sober for over 20 years. He and I have put together, and he has an MFA as well, and he and I have put together, he's an admirer of my work, and that's how we came together. That's how we found each other. He'd written a couple of reviews, and I contacted him to thank him. In any event, to get around to your question, I'll get there in a second. Take your time. I just wanted to introduce him and how he came into my life because he's co-author of the book I'm working, we're working on. And this one has to do with issues revolving, involving recovery and putting them into creative writing exercises. So you have a series of 10, 12 exercises, writing exercises, dealing with relapse, say, dealing with God or spirituality. And the culmination of these various exercises is a short story. So our belief is that we can, creative writing can be used as an effective tool in recovery, not just journaling. Most of the, most of the across the country, you're gonna find journaling is very, very, uh, very is a big and popular, important uh, methodology to the recovery process, but he and I got to thinking that maybe creative writing could also be used. So that's the book we're working on now. We're almost finished. It might give us another month. I think we'll tie it up. That's great. It's very exciting. Well, thank you. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? Don't tell them not to write. <laughs> no, no, allowed, I won't say that. You're not allowed to say that. Say anything else. <laughs> no, no, no. I have encouragement, discipline, and encouragement. The encouragement is is that 
you probably probably know and you've probably heard by other writers. And by the way, thank you again for having me on because I noticed you've had some very successful writers on. And I'm, I'm glad to be a part of your podcast and a part of this interview. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm very pleased to. I think the two things, perseverance and then discipline. The discipline means that you need to write, write regularly and, and learn to hone your craft. And that involves the actual act of writing. And I think we learn most about writing through the process of writing. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from instructors who have gone the distance themselves to be helpful. But in the end, it's you, as you well know, you're a writer yourself. In the end, it's just you and what is it you're looking at, either the computer or we're looking at the page, if you're writing longhand. In the end, it's just you and the pen. The next thing is, is when you take that deep breath, you think you have something to show. And you believe you have something to show. It's very scary at that point. Now you're going to put it out there, try to put it out there to the world. And you're asking for acceptance. And you want to be liked. You want your work to be read. And then the rejections come in. And it's heartbreaking. And I've seen a lot of writers, good ones, some of the most talented writers I've seen, have received rejections, one after another after another. And some of them will give up at that point. They say, I must not be any good because no one's taking my work. And that could be the furthest thing from the truth. It just means you may not have found the right person yet. And so my advice to the writer, aspiring writer, and professional writer, too, is the discipline, writing regularly, and two, the perseverance, continuing on along the face, you know, continuing in the face of what we're bound to get is rejection. Very encouraging. Well, thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> You're welcome. And I should have said earlier on, I meant to say in the beginning, just how sorry I am for the loss of your brother and sister in such awful, traumatic, terrible ways. And you're having to go through your whole life with that loss is just really unthinkable and awful. So anyway, I just wanted to express how sorry I am that you had to go through that and for those losses in your life. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anyway. Well, so that's it. Is that it? <laughs> okay. Thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for this beautiful book. And I know you mentioned I have lots of well-known authors, as you are as well, by the way. But this is really the top of the pile. This is a really beautiful book. And you belong. You belong on the show. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. I, I, again, I appreciate it very much. No problem. <laughs> All right. All right. Nice. Take care. Nice All right. To okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 